cultural crusade all across America. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And what a great day it is to take a detailed look at one of the greatest, most impassioned, most fateful conflicts of our time. It's a conflict that doesn't take place in the United States, but the United States is very directly involved. I'm talking about the conflict at the heart of the Middle East and its struggles, the conflict between Israel and her Arab neighbors. Usually on this show, we focus on issues directly involving America. Of course, this involves America. We'll talk about how and why as part of this very special show a show trying to cut through all of the confusion all of the controversy all of the conflict involving this conflict as we take a look at why they fight the story of the arab israeli struggle and of course when you start trying to tell that story you go very far back in time indeed the jewish relationship to the spot of land and it really isn't very much land at all the little spot of land that today is known as Israel goes back to the forefather Abraham who first came to that land historians say about 2000 BC in other words 4000 years ago but Abraham didn't stay I mean he stayed he wandered back and forth he was a nomad Eventually, his grandchildren and great-grandchildren went to Egypt. And what that meant was that a permanent Jewish presence in what is today Israel began when Moses led the Jews out of Egyptian slavery and Joshua conquered the Canaanites. It's all described in the Bible. Historians suggest that that happened about 1200 B.C. In other words, 3,200 years ago. But wait a minute, that's a very long history. The Palestinians on their side claim that they are descended from the Canaanites who Joshua displaced. And indeed, one of their early capitals of the Palestine Authority was in Jericho, one of those cities that Joshua conquered when he came into the land. The claims on this piece of real estate are extraordinary and they're ancient. And one of the things that is rather surprising about it is you'd think given the level of intensity with which people have claimed this bit of land over the ages over the millennia that it was some kind of amazing garden spot but those of you who have been to Israel who have toured the Holy Land understand that it isn't just physical beauty it isn't productivity it isn't any sort of blessed nature of water supply or greenery or anything like that that makes this land so special it's the history associated with it and after Joshua came in to the land and a Jewish Commonwealth was established there they usually date the um, the establishment of the monarchy the kings of Israel in the 11th century BC under King Saul and then later King David and King Solomon the construction of the temple in Jerusalem all of this is occurring close to a thousand years before Christ and during a very very long period of time there clearly was and there is no historical doubt about this at all I mean the archaeological evidence is there the historical evidence is there not only in the Bible but as repeated by Greek and Roman historians and many others that there was a flourishing Jewish Commonwealth 
called Israel, called Judea. There were two kingdoms that split. And yes, the Jews were exiled originally in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. They came back less than 50 years later, rebuilt the temple 70 years later, and then continued to live on that spot of land for another more than 400 years until the Romans destroyed the second temple in 70 A.D. And now you're talking about all kinds of very well-recorded history. The destruction of that second temple was only one generation after the crucifixion of Jesus. And this is very well recorded. There are Roman statues about it. There's a, a Roman, a famous Arch of Titus in Rome that shows the Roman troops taking home the artifacts from the temple. Even after the destruction of the second temple and the exile of the Jews, and this unimaginable disaster where most historians suggest that up to a million people, men, women, and children, were slaughtered. And the remaining population of the land, perhaps another million, maybe even as many as two million, most of them were sold off into slavery and sent into exile. Because the Romans, having dealt with a horrible and very stubborn Jewish rebellion against Roman rule, didn't want to deal with that anymore. And they actually wanted to wipe out the Jewish identity of this land. Remember, Jews had lived here, had had a commonwealth here for more than a thousand years. The Romans wanted to extinguish that. And so they changed the name of the Roman province. They changed the name from Judea, Judea, to Philistia, Palestine. Naming it after Palestina, it became in the Roman, in the Roman uh, jargon. They named it after the Philistines, who had been the arch enemies of the Jewish people, of the Hebrew people. There weren't many Philistines left at the time, but it was a gesture that the Romans took very seriously, just like they took very seriously knocking down every scrap of the Holy Temple on the Temple Mount, and they actually sewed over the Temple Mount in salt, so it would be desolate and nothing would grow there. Yet there remained in Israel, a Jewish community forever. Despite the fact that, that people were exiled, despite the fact that uh, they had undergone this tremendous disaster, which is observed to this day by Jews around the world with an annual fast day, the ninth day of the month of Av, which is the day that both of the great temples were destroyed. Despite all of that, there was a continual Jewish presence in the land of Israel. In fact, even after the destruction of the Second Temple, people kept streaming back and coming back and resettling. Large communities were reestablished in Jerusalem and in Tiberia and Tiberias by the 800s. And in the 11th century, in the 1000s, Jewish communities grew in Rafa, Gaza, Ashkelon, Jaffa, and Caesarea. So the idea that somehow the Jews had disappeared from their land simply not true because even in the Middle Ages when the population of the territory was overwhelmingly Arab there was a, a a very real Jewish presence but what about the bulk of the population well what had happened is under Roman rule the population had been devastated and when Rome became Christian the uh, the official and Rome also split into the Byzantine Empire into the Eastern Empire and the Western Empire 
Well, Israel was under the eastern part of the Roman Empire, and that Roman province, Palestine, was Christian. And they're not heavily Christian, because there were people who practiced all sorts of different local religions, and there was also a Jewish presence remaining there. But it was Christian until the 600s. And in the 600s, briefly, Persia came in, conquered the land from the Byzantines, from the Eastern Roman Empire. And then about 20 years later, and that's all, after the Persians conquered it, uh, the followers of Muhammad, the early Muslims, came in and conquered what was then the Roman, Eastern Roman province of Palestine, and made it Muslim. Now, one thing that's very important to understand is Muhammad never set foot in his life on anywhere on the territory of Israel. The whole association of Muhammad with Israel is he had a dream which is recorded in the Holy Quran. And the dream says he went to a distant province. And from that distant province, he departed to heaven in his dream. And they have identified by tradition, though it's not specified in the Quran, that that distant province was Jerusalem and that that was the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the site of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. But the name Jerusalem is never mentioned in the Holy Quran. But nevertheless, in the beginning of the 600s, early 600s, Israel began its years of Muslim domination. And did the Muslims, who then held the Holy Land, hold it consistently? Not quite. Did they use it as a capital in Jerusalem? Not quite. We'll continue the story coming up. On this very special broadcast, trying to do the almost impossible which is to make some sense and give you some clarity concerning the story of the Arab-Israeli conflict, why they fight. We were talking uh, right before the break about the Muslim takeover of Jerusalem, which was on 637 A.D. It was just five years after the great prophet Muhammad died. And at this moment, you have to understand the tremendous explosion of energy and creativity and genius, and that's really the only word for it, that was associated with the Muslim conquests that were sweeping everything in front of them. The, uh, the, the truth of the matter is that uh, for the first time, the Arab peoples were expanding the borders of their control, and they marched into Jerusalem, they marched into Israel, and made it part of their empire. And it was a glittering empire. There's no question at all that at the time of the, the great glory of the Arab caliphate, of the, the Arab empire centered in the Middle East, centered in Baghdad and Damascus, uh, after leaving the, the old home of the Muslim religion in, in Mecca and Medina and Saudi Arabia, the tremendous status of this civilization made it far more advanced than anything that was going on in the West in terms of science, architecture, poetry, a just general level of civilization, livability for the people who lived in that civilization. And this is very, very important to keep in mind because this memory of the great glory 
of the early years of Muslim civilization is very much alive in the minds of so many, many Muslim people today, very much including Osama bin Laden. But the interesting point about their taking over Jerusalem and their taking over the land of Israel was they never made it a separate land. It was always just part of the Ummah, part of the Muslim world. And here's something else that's fascinating. Though Jerusalem was undoubtedly important to the Muslims, and they built a mosque there, and then they built another mosque there, important mosques. In fact, the story is that they, um, they asked Jewish shepherd boys who were left in Jerusalem where the site of the old temple was because they wanted to put the mosque right there on top of the site of the old Jewish temple, and they did pretty close. Uh, so that has created all kinds of difficulties down to the present day. But they built these mosques, and they, and they built it up, but they never used Jerusalem ever during all the years of Muslim occupancy of the land of Israel. Never did they make Jerusalem even a provincial capital. Baghdad was a capital. Damascus was a capital. Istanbul was a capital when the Ottoman Empire took over, the Muslim Ottoman Empire took over in 1517. Jerusalem never was. Jerusalem was always something of a backwater. It was not only not a world capital, it wasn't even a capital of a separate province. And this is one of those things that is, it's, it's absolutely true, you can check it, it is very, very uncomfortable to say because it's politically incorrect, but it needs to be said. There never, ever was a separate country in the area of Israel other than the ancient Jewish kingdom of Israel and the modern Jewish nation of Israel. In all that intervening time, when the Jewish people were in exile, what was the land of Israel, just geographically, was part of the Roman Empire, then it was part of the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, then for 20 years it was part of the Persian Empire, then after that it was part of the Arab Empire, then the Ottoman Turks took over in 1517, and then after World War I the British took over. But at no time was there an independent, self-governing, separate state other than just a backward province of some other empire at no time until the modern state of Israel came into existence in 1948. And the idea that there was a nation of Palestine and that it was glorious and that it was important is simply not true. And, and how do we know that? Let me cite you the, the um, statement of an Arab-American historian, very distinguished guy. He taught at Princeton University, Professor Philip Heaty, who spoke to an Anglo-American committee in 1946, and he said, there is no such thing as Palestine in history. Absolutely not. In fact, Palestine is never explicitly mentioned in the Quran. Rather, it is called simply the Holy Land. And this was very much the attitude even of most Arabs who lived in that area. They did not see themselves until much later as Palestinians with some kind of separate identity. They were just Arabs. They were Muslims. They were part of this world group that was very important. For instance, 
when the first Congress of the Muslim Christian Association met in Jerusalem in February of 1919 to choose Palestinian representatives for the Paris Peace Conference at the end of World War I, they adopted the following resolution, quote, we consider Palestine as part of Arab Syria, as it has never been separated from it at any time. We are connected with it by national, religious, linguistic, natural, economic, and geographical bonds. The idea of a separate nation of Palestine, a separate Arab nation of Palestine, didn't really begin to be taken seriously until 1967 after the Six-Day War. But we will get to that. The important thing here is what about the Jewish people who had once lived in the land of Israel and who still lived in the land of Israel and in fairly substantial numbers from the from 1800 on there was a Jewish majority for instance in the city of Jerusalem even though the population of the city of Jerusalem was pathetic you know in 1844 they took a census the Turks ran Jerusalem you know what the population of that city was it was 15,000 15,000 majority Jewish but you're talking about a very very backward out of the way province and a very out-of-the-way city in terms of the city of Jerusalem. Jews scattered all over the world after the destruction of the Second Temple. There was another revolt by Jews remaining in the land of Israel, uh, the revolt of uh, Shimon Bar Kokhba, who was a pretender, a false messiah, and that was crushed in 135 A.D., and further Jews were uh, distributed all around the world. And they were everywhere, really, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe, very much in Spain and North Africa. And yet Jewish people remained focused on the land of Israel. In prayers every day, three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening prayers, religious Jews to this day remember Jerusalem and ask for a return to Jerusalem and a reestablishment of a Jewish nation there. Though it's probably only in the very recent years, the last hundred years or so, that people have begun to believe that their own actions could begin to make some of those prayers come true and to be answered. We'll talk about some of those actions that enabled those answered prayers as soon as we come back. special edition of the Michael Medved Show, we're trying to cut through all of the propaganda and the shouting about the Middle East with some truth and clarity on this special show, Why They Fight, the story of the Arab-Israeli struggle. What was Israel like, say, in the 1800s, uh, when it was a remote province of the Ottoman Empire, with a, um, a poor uh, but stubbornly committed Jewish community, centered in Jerusalem and a number of other towns, and with a, um, a Muslim population of about 250,000 people total living in the land in 1882 in the census that was taken then, making it one of the most underpopulated, one of the most desolate, one of the most remote provinces of the whole Ottoman Empire. Well, you know, we have a very good idea 
of what Israel was like at that time because there were lots of Christian visitors who, taking advantage of the fact that you could take ships and trains and eventually get there, made a point of trying to look at this land in which Jesus Christ himself once walked. And one of those visitors who came to the land of Israel in 1867 was Mark Twain. And you can read his descriptions of traveling through the land of Israel, through the Holy Land at that time. And he was just appalled at the dirt and, and the squalor and how desolate the land was. For instance, he describes it as, quote, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with a pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the country." Unquote. The, um, the poverty was also extraordinary. What existed uh, at the time for the majority of the Arab residents of the Holy Land was, well, they were basically tenant farmers. They were called fellahin, very impoverished people who worked uh, for a few very wealthy absentee landholders. And they farmed, struggled in using the same techniques that had been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Part of the problem, of course, was this was all under Turkish administration. Turkey, by the 1800s, was known as the sick man of Europe. It was a collapsing country with more and more provinces of the Ottoman Empire, which had reached its peak in about the 1600s. More and more provinces of the Ottoman Empire breaking away and, and, uh, and falling apart, basically. Finally, the entire Ottoman Empire collapsed during World War I when it was fought alongside the Germans. But uh, one of the problems was you could pretty much get anything you wanted in the Turkish Empire, in the Ottoman Empire, by paying bakshish, bribes. And this interested a number of dreamers, originally some very religious dreamers, and then later some secular Jewish dreamers who, beginning in the 1800s, really thought that rather than just the sporadic, inspired religious people going back to reconnect with the land of Israel, why don't we create some organized settlements? And those organized settlements really began before Zionism was an organized movement. Settlements like Rishon Letzion, that means the first of Zion, or Petach Tikva, which means the gate of hope. And th that kind of um, settlement began to spring up with people largely from, from Russia and Poland and Eastern Europe who had this dream of redeeming the land. One of them was a guy named Vladimir Dubno, who took the name Zev Dubno. And on the 21st of September, 1882, he wrote to his brother Simon. And this guy, Zev Dubno, was at an agricultural settlement in this desolate land of Israel. And he wrote, do you really think that my soul in, in motivation in coming here is to better myself? My ultimate aim, like that of many others, is greater, broader, incomprehensible, but not unattainable. The final goal is eventually to gain control of Palestine and to restore to the Jewish people 
the political independence of which it has been deprived for 2,000 years. Don't laugh, this is no illusion. The means for realizing this goal is at hand. The founding of settlements in the country based on agriculture and crafts, the establishment and gradual expansion of all sorts of factories, and brief to make an effort so that all the land, all the industry, will be in Jewish hands. Here I too am plunging into conjecture. Then the glorious day will dawn of which Isaiah prophesied in his burning and poetic utterances. The Jews will proclaim in a loud voice, and if necessary with arms in their hands, that they are masters of their ancient homeland. It doesn't matter whether that glorious day comes in another 50 years or more. 50 years are but a moment for such an enterprise. Agree, my friend, that this is a sublime and magnificent idea. We'll tell you what happened to his prophecy. Coming right back. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. As the nation struggles with our legacy of racism and inequality, many well-intentioned Americans embrace lies about white privilege, the idea that people of European ancestry enjoy vast advantages based solely on their ongoing oppression of all people of color. But many measures of well-being contradict this simplistic theory. Most recent numbers show white life expectancy declining, while Asian American people can expect to live a full eight years longer. And Latino children will live on average four years longer than whites. Suicide in America claims twice as many lives as murder, and white people have the highest suicide rates, almost double those of black people. The largest number of crime victims, welfare recipients, drug deaths, and most other measures of misery are white. This doesn't mean black families don't suffer from intolerable race-based inequalities that must be overcome. But it's no solution to focus on purported white privilege that actually doesn't exist. I'm Michael Medved. On this special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, why they fight the story of the Arab-Israeli struggle... That remarkable letter by Zev Dubno, who had gone from Eastern Europe to work at an agricultural settlement in Israel in the 1880s, and wrote to his brother Simon, saying, 50 years are but a moment for such an enterprise. Agree, my friend, that this is a sublime and magnificent idea. Actually, he was wrong only by a little bit, 65 years after he wrote that letter. There was a new state of Israel that had been created. And by the way, the brother to whom he wrote the letter became a distinguished Jewish historian, Simon Dubno, who believed that the real role of the Jewish people would always be in exile, not in the land of Israel. And he was murdered by the Nazis uh, when he was in his 80s. But meanwhile, these struggling settlements, when you read the story of some of these settlements, and when I say settlements, they weren't taking anyone's land. They bought, purchased, at top dollar, the land uh, from absentee landlords where nothing had grown and nothing could grow. Very often there were malarial swamps there, there was no water. In this one little town, this town known as Rishon Lezion, where which later became eventually the center of the new Israeli wine industry because they could grow grapes there. Carmel Winery grew up there. But uh, in, that, in that little settlement there were ten Jews from Russia, who came and, and tried to get it going. 
and they had a terrible time, and they had to get special help from abroad and get the wells dug and survive. And, and finally, as it looked like their settlement was going to survive, there was a Romanian Jewish poet named Naftali Herzimber who came to the town and read to them with much ceremony a new poem that he had written to honor this uh, town of Rishon Lezion, the first of Zion. And that, that new poem set to music by another immigrant in the town named Samuel Cohen, who had immigrated from Moldavia four years earlier. That poem set to music became, ultimately, the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva, or The Hope. We'll continue the story coming up. You're listening to a Best of the Michael Medved Show. For complete show archives, go to michaelmedved.com and consider becoming a medhead. It's all at michaelmedved.com. Click on the Medhead banner today. You're listening to a Best of the Michael Medved Show. That poem set to music became, ultimately, the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva, or The Hope. What the words mean is, as long as deep in the heart the soul of a Jew yearns, and towards the east an eye looks to Zion, our hope is not yet lost, the hope of two thousand years, to be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. In interestingly enough, Naftali Hertz Imber, who wrote that poem, and it later just was a sensation, became the theme song for the whole Zionist movement, he, um, he later, well, became a self-destructive drunk and made a fool of himself coming to Zionist conferences, and uh, they eventually banned him and tried to throw him out. And at one point, he, it was recorded that he was banging on the door, and he said, you may get rid of me, but you will be singing my song forever. And uh, that's actually been the case. This term Zionist, which began to be used in the later 1800s, needs a bit of explanation. Because the way it's used today in a lot of political discourse, somebody says that if you're a Zionist, it means that you think the Jewish people are better than all other people. The UN, with the leadership of the Soviet Union, the old Soviet bloc, and the so-called non-aligned bloc, and the Arab nations, passed a resolution that said Zionism is racism. And then later, years later, they took that resolution back. Zionism is not about race at all. Zionism means simply the belief that there should be a Jewish homeland and basically the Jews should consider being part of that Jewish homeland. And this idea was percolating throughout Europe and um, percolating in a very serious way by the last years of the 19th century. There are a couple of reasons for it. One of the reasons is that that was a time of great emerging nationalism everywhere. Remember, it was only in 1870 that for the first time you have German nationalism. You have for the first time Germany, all the different provinces and uh, principalities of Germany fuse into one German nation. That nationalism is new and fresh. Italian nationalism, the creation of United Italy for the first time, and all kinds of other nationalisms uh, taking place in Europe. 
Czech nationalism, Bohemian nationalism, and Czech nationalism, and many others in Finland, all over the world. The Jewish nationalism, the feeling that we should have a home of our own, that was part of that same phenomenon. But there was another reason for it, which is that only in the 19th century, only after Napoleon, did Jews in most countries of Europe begin to have civil rights, the rights to own property, the rights to vote, the rights to participate fully, because of the very, very long history of European anti-Semitism. And what had happened by the end of the 1800s is that people realized that even with all those rights, even with increasing prosperity, at least for the Jews of Western Europe, that it was still a very, very long way from equality. And one uh, event that helped to focus that was the Dreyfus trial in France, where an officer of the French army was scapegoated for the French defeat to the Germans and really falsely accused and became a huge sensation in France. And he was scapegoated because he was Jewish. He was an officer in the army. One of the, one of the people who covered that trial was a Hungarian-born, Budapest-born, Viennese playwright and critic. Yeah, he was a drama critic named Theodor Herzl. What a remarkable man. Uh, very full of himself, very arrogant, uh, very handsome. I mean, you look at the photographs and you just can't believe this guy. Long, full beard, glaring eyes, absolutely charismatic and riveting. And he was so moved by the Dreyfus trial he had never really taken his own Jewish identity seriously, that he became caught up with this idea of the need for a Jewish homeland. And he wrote a book. And it ended up being one of the most persuasive and influential books in all of history. It was a book called The Jewish State, in which he outlined his view of not some kind of long-term dream, but his view that by acting together and acting with purpose, the Jewish people could rebuild the Jewish state in the land of Israel within their own lifetime. What happened to that book and that dream? We'll bring you up to date. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. Angry protesters want to turn public sentiment against the police, but their ugly tactics remind all sane observers how much we need the cops. Rioting, looting, arson, Molotov cocktails, graffiti, and vandalism show how vulnerable all citizens would be without the courage of police officers who put their lives on the line every day. Sure, you can find examples of bad or poorly trained cops, but they're far more rare in police ranks than our violent criminal elements in the ranks of the demonstrators. In a difficult moment, a time when Americans can't decide whether to emphasize economic recovery or continue precautions against COVID-19, the nationwide rioting harms both hopes. Literally, thousands of already struggling businesses have been badly damaged, while assembling super-spreader, densely-packed crowds will only generate new spikes in the spread of the virus. No wonder most Americans love and value our police officers, without whom decent lives and livable cities could not exist. I'm Michael Medved. Special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show on the story 
of the Arab-Israeli conflict, why they fight. And talking about the beginnings of the organized Zionist movement, the first Zionist conference after Theodor Herzl's book, The Jewish State, had been a worldwide sensation. There were Jews from throughout the world, particularly from Eastern Europe, where in Russia and elsewhere Jews were terribly oppressed and, and poor and powerless. They were thrilled with someone like Herzl, who was wealthy, prominent, a bon vivant, a cultured Germanic Jew, and very much a part of the West, who had now embraced his own people and had embraced this feverish dream of creating a new Jewish state. And he helped summon the world's first Zionist conference, the first worldwide conference of people who shared his dream, and it met in Switzerland, in Basel, in 1897. But to give you some idea of who Herzl really was, he wasn't just content with uh, trying to liberate Jews and to build a Jewish state. He also wrote in his diary, There is still one other question arising out of the disaster of nations, which remains unsolved to this day, and whose profound tragedy only a Jew can comprehend. This is the African question. Just call to mind all those terrible episodes of the slave trade, of human beings who, merely because they were black, were stolen like cattle, taken prisoner, captured and sold, their children grew up in strange lands, the objects of contempt and hostility, because their complexions were different. I am not ashamed to say, he wrote, though I may expose myself to ridicule for saying so, that once I have witnessed the redemption of the Jews, my people, I wish also to assist in the redemption of the Africans. Unfortunately, Theodor Herzl, who was thoroughly full of himself and a remarkably gifted individual never got around to the redemption of the Africans. He died at age 44, having exhausted himself in meetings all around the world, trying to talk to heads of state, to leaders, to try to give them his vision, his Zionist vision of a new revived Jewish state, a solution, as he put it, to the Jewish problem, which many leaders of Western and particularly Eastern Europe felt that they had. One of the early slogans of that Zionist movement was a land without a people for a people without a land. The idea being the Jewish people had no land and the land of Israel at the time, Palestine, had no people. The truth is though it did have people. Arab people, Jewish settlers, a small number, a larger number of Arab people who didn't see themselves and didn't see Palestine as a land without a people. The conflict we will continue to describe coming head to head. If you want a copy of this tape in its entirety or any of our other history tapes, you can get that. You can get that history tape from Tree Farm Communications by calling 800-468-0464. Uh, with this jam-packed information, and storytelling about the Arab-Israeli conflict and its origins, a very relevant story, an important story, to all people around the world and particularly to the greatest nation on God's green earth, upward and onward.